Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discussed relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, we're presenting another bonus Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. After all, one meaning of corona is halo of light. So together, let's find the silver lining in this pandemic. Tom, while normally heard on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, this episode will be, will be played on various podcast apps and at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. We also want to give a shout out to the Augustine Institute and the Formed app, that's F-O-R-M-E-D, where Dr. Doctor can now be found. Today's guest is not new to Dr. Doctor. We have Kathleen Birchelman. She's talked about vaccines, about uh, attention deficit uh, or attention, ADHD, whatever that stands for. I'm off my game. But Kathleen is a pediatrician, wife, mother of seven, a pediatric hospitalist, co-founder of My Catholic Doctor, uh, a new telehealth virtual care organization. Um, she worked for 15 years as an academic pediatrician in St. Louis. We're going to talk to her tonight, though, because she works in a New York City metropolitan area hospital. And the New York City area, of course, is the world center right now for COVID. So Kathleen, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Oh, it's my pleasure. I love you guys so much. Thank you. In your hospital, so just in general, you know, you've been a doctor for a number of years now. What have you seen in the last month as a physician that you have never seen before? Well, the first thing I've seen is empty hallways, an empty hospital. And it's eerie, I gotta be honest. So the, the ER and the adult ICUs and the places where that are full of COVID patients are hopping busy and everybody's in hazmat gear and the rest of the hospital is extraordinarily quiet there's because of their visitor restrictions etc even labor and delivery stronger restrictions than we've ever seen before the hospital has this eerie quiet atmosphere and in some sense, there's this peace to it, but then you realize that um, the peace comes from so much agony. So the peace is an absence of sound, not a, a presence of harmony. For sure, yes. Uh, and there, there's a, a loneliness uh, to the patients without visitors, the patients dying without their family, without their spouse, to the um, the moms and dads having babies and we we are allowing I, I staff labor and delivery we are allowing the father or support person usually the father at in the delivery but there's no other visitors you know while labor and de delivery is usually full of all these uh, joyful visitors yes. and grandparents and aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters um you know it's it's quiet it's just mom dad and baby for the whole time you know, Kathleen, I, just this morning, I was in the hospital last night and into this morning, um, and, and I agree completely with you as an OBGYN, labor and delivery is usually exploding with people, um, and it's it's very, very quiet, and uh, just yesterday, the hospital where I usually work instituted universal masks, and of course, I walk in this morning without my mask, <laughs> and everyone is looking at me. I thought people were going to start shouting, unclean, unclean. <laughs> But but never before have I felt like everyone is looking at everyone else. 
and watching what they touch and uh, what they don't touch. Yes. And if yes. they if they hand sanitize when they walked out of the room and it, it's a very odd environment, isn't it? But in so many ways, I think uh, it, it makes us holier because we have to be so focused on doing what's right and preventing the spread of illness is fundamental to a culture of life. So what are you doing now in terms of personal protective equipment and um, actions, precautions for infection control more than you might have done a month ago? So we, you know, it's universal mask um, whenever you're in the hospital and uh, certainly on labor and delivery, it's universal mask. What kind mask. of mask? Um, we were using N95, but in accordance with CDC criteria, we've gone down to a, a regular string mask. Okay. And um, then we, for, for deliveries, we're using um, face shields and, um, and, and and gowns face shields and gowns now how does that fit with with labor and delivery and risk of covid I, i'm missing something here it seems like it what does that do what's the theory behind it well we're going patient to patient and any woman who walks into our uh, labor and delivery unit in labor could be COVID positive. And there's no universal screening test, right, that comes back quickly. So we have to assume everyone's positive because then I'm going to okay. go see the next patient. So you're, even if they're not coughing and don't have a, a fever, you assume that they are contagious. That's right, yeah. Okay, so that's the basis for that. What do you think your hospital census is now percentage-wise compared to a normal April 2nd? Is it half? More than half, less than half? I wish I had exact numbers for you. The hospital that sends us in general is way down because we've canceled all um, you know, elective surgeries and elective procedures. And in general, people are avoiding going to the hospital unless they absolutely need to. But then other areas, such as our um, ICUs, are very full. Uh, they called in all hands on deck at my hospital. Any physician on the medical staff was asked to act as a hospitalist or an intensivist. So if you're a cardiologist or a gastroenterologist, uh, they or a, a, a primary care doctor that's on medical staff, they asked you to please come in and act as a hospitalist or intensivist and they'll train you and pay you. Oh my goodness. What about <clears throat> uh, dermatologists? Would they even do it to them? I think they'd take you, Tom. Oh, my goodness. I heard that they did that in Italy. So it sounds like, in some ways, New York City Metro is reliving part of the Italian experience. I do think so, yeah. Uh, I think that it's, it, I, our death rates are higher than anyone wants. Um, I, our, you know, um, there is concerns about uh, ventilator shortages. We, thank God, um, I, there, there, I have not heard of any patient at our institution that needs a ventilator and didn't have one, but we did do things like um, take um, ventilators out of the neonatal intensive care unit and put them in the adult ICU and use some ones that, are, that work better on babies in the NICU. We move things around. Um, so certainly, um, you know, we're using more ventilators than we ever have before. But uh, you haven't run out of ventilators. Thank God. Not yet. Uh, do you know if your hospital has a policy for uh, Plaquenil, hydroxychloroquine, for admitted It's patients? much discussed, and they send out a daily update. And um, and uh, at this time, we 
infectious disease gets involved in all the cases where we're considering hydroxychloroquine. So that's really the policy is ID has to be involved. Okay, because other doctors around the country, uh, the threshold is if you are admitted with COVID, you get it, you get the Plaquenil because they think that they might be able to uh, prevent people from needing a ventilator. That's the rationale that we've heard from other hospitals. Right. Yeah. And I, I, you know, we're going institution by institution. Oh, exactly. Good old Catholic so, subsidiarity. Yeah. That's right. So, Kathleen, you really are there at ground zero, um, no pun intended. Um, you know, give us and our listeners a sense of what, what's it feel like to be in a New York hospital when you see all of the things that we're all across the country seeing on the news with so many cases and so many deaths. Give our listeners a sense of what that feels like to you as a physician. Are you afraid for your own safety? What's that like? There is a lot of fear. Um, I would say that my family is more worried than I am. And <laughs> I, I, I don't have any good rational reason about why I'm not particularly scared. Um, I, I, I think that that's the piece that surpasses all understanding. And I thank the Lord for that grace. That said, I know many people that don't have peace in their heart about working in the hospitals, and um, and that includes my family members uh, that, that have a lot of anxiety about me working. So what do you do at the end of each shift to protect your family from you? Um, so we have a, I, you know, it was much discussed with my colleagues. Um, personally, I have a decontamination procedure. Um, so uh, I... Obviously, I, I change as soon as I arrive at work and then before I leave. So any clothes that were worn through the hospital, um, their scrubs, they get laundered by the hospital laundry. Um, and um, even my um, my socks and my underclothes, actually, I change and I put them in a plastic bag. And um, then uh, I walk out of the hospital in street clothes and drive home and um, using hand sanitizer, et cetera, on the way out the door. Uh, but I do, we do consider my vehicle to be contaminated. Um, and then uh, my, my husband sets everything up before I walk in the door. And, and we're very blessed that we have a laundry room and a bathroom right off the door from the garage into the house. So um, I put, my husband leaves the, like the door to the washer open and the door to the shower, <laughs> bathroom, the door to the shower, everything's open. And he keeps the kids on the other side of the house. And I just come in, I put every last item directly in the washer without touching anything, without touching any doorknobs. And then I jump right in the shower. And the only thing I touch is the knob to turn the shower on, right? And completely decontaminate. And then my shoes stay in the garage. And um, then the car and my shoes and uh, my work bag, anything I've touched, my work badge, et cetera, even my keys, get they just stay in the garage for 24 hours um, because, you know, that, that we believe that the virus isn't living um, that much longer on these types of, um, of surfaces. So um, everything gets decontaminated with time, basically, that I've touched, and then I get decontaminated in the shower. So, and then you interact with your family after the shower. Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And this question has come up with a, a lot of people are sending in emails to the Catholic Medical Association asking, like we had a 62-year-old a wife of an ER doctor ask what they should do. Uh, the thing that threw a wrench into it is that the CDC changed their uh, tracing 
algorithm to include not those people that a new case got when they started symptoms, but to those people they contacted even 48 hours before. Yeah. I, I mean, and nobody can, uh, I mean, that, then we would be social distancing uh, to an incredible level. Uh, I mean, what, all physicians can't interact with their families? Well, I do know people that are choosing to wear a mask at home. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and um, I'm not, this was discussed with my husband. Um, I have some family members pressuring me to wear a mask at home all the time. Um, that's extremely difficult as a breastfeeding mother. Um, I also don't think it would be effective or practical. I think my babies would just pull it right off my face um, and hate it. <laughs> um, so I, I'm not wearing a mask at home, but I know other healthcare workers that do wear a mask at home. The custom of handshakes. This has come up a lot with our public health docs. How is your view of that social custom maybe different now than it was a month ago? I hope it's gone forever. I really do. <laughs> I mean, it, it really brings home the fact that this is the number one way, perhaps, that all respiratory infections are spread in this country. I agree. And there's no reason why we can't, you know, I've taken on this gesture. I, swear, I got this from the sisters. It's a local order that, ah. that, that do this and they put their hand on their heart and they go like this, they bow. It's just a sort of like head nod with their hand on their chest. I like and, it. Uh, and, and that's how, when I walk into her room and I introduce myself to a family, I say, I, I do this. I put my hand on my chest. And I give a little nod and you're sort of shaking hands with yourself. <laughs> I like that. You know, our public health docs, Paul Carson and Paul Cieslak, they they just think that the worst possible thing we do when we go to mass is the handshake at the sign of peace. <laughs> no, this is going to turn out to be the Psychiatry uh, Employment Act because all of those patients who've had OCD and their compulsion <laughs> hand washing uh, and and fear of germs now they're they're going to be oh. Uh, that they came up last week when I interviewed psychiatrist Kevin Majors. He said all of his OCD patients are going like, everybody understands me now. This is great. <laughs> it's true. And I think there's so much gift in it because, you know, I know that whenever I walk into a room, I the parent has to see me take the alcohol wipe and clean yes. my stethoscope before I ever, and they have to see me clean my hands before I ever approach them or God forbid their newborn baby. And so, um, I, you know, I'm better about it. Um, I, you know, I'm better about making sure not only that it's done, but it's not done, you know, in a, a poor manner that it's done really well for you know that there's enough alcohol in my hands that um, I really clean the whole stethoscope not just like a quick wipe down and there's gift in this yes so Kathleen how is your practice different now in other words the reasons that your patients are in the hospital how is that different now than say four to six weeks ago I think people are waiting way too long to come to the hospital mm. um, and I have seen some cases, uh, I can't go into detail, that, had, um, that I, I think, I think the, they, the parents waited too long to bring their sick kids to the hospital because no one wants to go to a New York metro area hospital in the middle of this pandemic unless you're you know, profoundly ill. And the problem is waiting until your child's profoundly ill sometimes is too late. What kind of diagnoses would those include? Um, any respiratory illness. Um, uh, any, um, you know, um, a seizure type, um, or, uh, anything that's causing um, uh, 
um, prolonged high fever. Um, these, you know, these are things that in a different times parents would come running in and in fact we had the opposite problem you know often in pediatrics you see parents that are so terrified that their baby has um you know a minor illness and our role is reassurance right but now it's flipped it's the opposite yeah oh my goodness so do you want to give some recommendations to listeners about what types of things they should go to a hospital for even if it's a hospital with covid patients well, I recommend telehealth, right? So I <laughs> That's the next episode, okay, <laughs> Kathleen? <laughs> okay, but <laughs> Okay, but are there things for which they should go to the hospital? Yeah. Like You know what? If you're if you were going to call 911 before this, you still need to call 911. Yeah. And um and that that hasn't changed. And uh if if you don't need to call 911, then you should and you're not sure whether or not you need to go to a hospital, then call your physician or do a telehealth visit. Um, and, uh, and then you'll be guided about whether or not you do need to go to the hospital in the middle of a pandemic. Kathleen, as a pediatrician, do you, have you had a chance to see ER visits change during the pandemic with, uh, you know, sick children, sick infants? Do you think people are avoiding the ERs as well? Yes, for sure. And with good reason. I mean, I just saw a baby, um, um, uh, that's uh, fr the the baby and the mom are uh, friends with the sisters of life, and um, I saw this brand new beautiful baby by telehealth because uh, they, you know, it's it's Metro New York. Nobody wants to bring a new, a healthy, beautiful newborn to um, a to any type of an urgent care or ER for a minor illness right now, and uh, and with good reason. And so, you know, the criteria for when to come in, I think I think it has changed, right? And um, I think there is more of a role of, of telehealth for protecting people, but uh, it doesn't mean don't see a doctor. It means um, you use telehealth for screening and then only go in when you really need to. So what are the diagnoses of your patients in the hospital right now? Um, 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 I, you know, being very careful to make sure I don't break any HIPAA uh, rules. Right. Um, um, right now, I am seeing patients with a severe respiratory illness. Um, they're not all COVID. There's patients that have pneumonia caused by other types sure. of infectious agents, um, other viruses, other bacteria. Um, and uh, then uh, we have patients that have all the same severe, unfortunately, severe illnesses that bring kids into the hospital. Um, we have mental patients with severe mental illness requiring hospitalization. We have um, uh, patients with uh, seizure disorders. Um, we have patients that, um, you know, injury patients, uh, and certainly pent up in uh, your house for so long. Um, kids are uh, still jumping on couches and hitting coffee tables, which I think is one of the most common mechanisms of injury in pediatrics. So how about like bad asthma attacks or cancer patients? Are they still in the hospital? Yes. And um, yes, the oncology floors are still busy and it's really scary to go over there, right? Because you don't want to bring anything into that uh, unit. So are they trying to uh, have different pathways to physically go through the hospital so you don't cross-contaminate like a cancer ward with a COVID ward? Yes, they do. And um, and there's and severe visitor restrictions too there's no visitors in most of our hospital 
Is there a way that your hospital provides for priests to administer sacraments? Um, so the clergy are still there. They're still permitted. Oh, and um, our, But it's our hospital chaplaincy. We are very blessed to have a priest assigned as a chaplain. Um, and uh, they they are administering sacraments. We're also very blessed to have the Eucharist, to have the Blessed Sacrament present in the tabernacle at our hospital chapel. And uh, I, I, uh, I can't tell you how grateful I am for that. It was the first thing um, I, I wanted to know when I entered a new employee orientation. <laughs> I think they thought I was like, as soon as we, the, we did the uh, chapel tour, I, I'm asking like, the the a unitarian chaplain who <laughs> was doing the tour <laughs> no really but but is it there do they leave it in that locked tabernacle it's just like uh yes yes they do <laughs> those wacky catholic doctors uh not a better time to be a wacky catholic doctor but but it's tough on on our priests um and deacons who spend so much time in nursing homes and intensive care units and uh and, and rehabilitation centers I know they feel equally frustrated, unable to get to the people that need them so much. So for those of us who practice in hospitals that have kind of in-house priests, we're really lucky, but uh, I suspect that's pretty uncommon across the country. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I, I, again, I think that there still is a role here for telehealth. And I know that you can't administer the sacrament of, um, uh, of reconciliation through um, telehealth. I, I know that it, it has to be the real, you know, physical, yes. real physical presence. That said, I still think confidential um, counseling and prayer is powerful and shouldn't be overlooked as an option through video communication. That's a good point. Do you think we've learned anything in the last two weeks about COVID and kids that we didn't know then? The reason I say two weeks is two weeks ago, we interviewed um, your colleague and mine in the Catholic Medical Association, Michelle Stanford who's a pediatrician yes. in Denver. It, what's new? In kids, um, we are seeing, uh, there, there have been a handful of severely ill children. It's true that it's not attacking children as severely um, as people had worried in the beginning of this pandemic, and that the early data um, coming out of Europe and China shows much lower severe illness in children. And I would say that that's consistent with uh, my personal experience. That said, you know, every life is precious, right? And children can still become severely ill. And I don't think we should overlook that. And also that children still are, um, you know, easily, they easily contract these illnesses because their immune system is still developing and therefore can be very more contagious. They can have a, you know, the the hypothesis is that they can carry a higher viral load and be spiking the high fevers and passing on the illness, even if they don't develop severe respiratory illness. Uh, interesting. And from the, the, you know, the first data of what, 2,100 uh, pediatric patients out of China, it looked like the highest attack rate was in kids who are infants under the age of one. There was about a 7% who had a severe critical disease and was only a couple percent as you got older than that. So I, I, don't know if, I don't know if you're seeing that or not. 
that's consistent with my experience. Okay. Yes. So the infants have it the worst. I saw a report today that a six week old in Connecticut uh, died yesterday or today, but they weren't clear if it was definitely COVID or not. I suspect it's because that? The, I, I'm not familiar with that particular case. I think I do know all about COVID testing and how turnaround times um, and around here. And I, I, we there's significant delays it's at least usually um right now it, at about 24 hours at best um to get an inpatient critically ill covid test back and in some cases um, more than 14 days even though they recently approved a 45 minute and then a 15 minute test so you guys don't have those yet at this time, my institution, I should say, as per my last shift, which was a few days ago, my institution had not yet um, had access to those okay. tests. But, you know, we're seeing, I think, every day, things change so quickly. But the other thing that we're seeing is the problem of uh, public health statistics that we all learned maybe our first year in medical school and hope to right. forget. <laughs> but, you know, a, a COVID patient dies in a car accident. It's not a COVID death. Um, right. But... I'm not sure we have a lot of reliability on how the media is treating the statistics across the board because things are changing so quickly, even more quickly than by the hour. They're changing. Yeah. I know just today, um, the Indiana State Department of Health changed pregnant women as those who are considered high risk should they contract the virus. We've been saying all along that wasn't the case. Uh, it's sort of nice because that gives us an opportunity to have them tested. But, you know, every day, it seems like the information that was that was correct yesterday, it may be incorrect tomorrow. And I think that frustrates us all, doesn't it? It, it sure does. And uh, and then there's and it frustrates the patients even more. So, Kathleen, as we bring this interview to an end, what final thoughts about uh, your hospital experiences during a pandemic do you want to leave with listeners? Um, the, the, the goal is for all of us to pray for the peace that surpasses all understanding. Well, that you was know, very good. <laughs> Kathleen, um, for hundreds of years and hundreds of pandemics, physicians have been rushing into the burning buildings of infectious disease and taking care of their patients. And um, it, it's, it's an honor to know you and to know that you're one of those patients, one of those physicians running into the building to take care of patients. And I think we all, Tom and I and our listeners, appreciate you and thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you, Kathleen, and thank you, listeners, for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor.
Do you own popular index mutual funds or ETFs? If so, you're automatically owned shares of companies that conflict with your moral beliefs. Ave Maria mutual funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. The experienced professional portfolio managers make decisions based on investment fundamentals and pro-life values. You can learn more about Ave Maria mutual funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.